handle the truth. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. Saturday night cell block. This is Thomas Freeme. And this is the Thomas Freeme TV and podcast show. Many blessings to everybody, man. I pray that everybody's safe and sound and comfortable in their homes. They're amongst loved ones, feeling the comfort of family and 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 loyalty and trust and honesty and you know and and all of these things that are really missing out of today's world. Maybe we'll we'll cover some of that with with uh, my guest tonight. Uh, before we get into that, um, please visit the link below when you have a chance. www.cominghomecoalition.com. Visit Project Start Fresh. That is the project that we have here in the Tampa Bay area that we uh, run raffles to help with the homeless. And what we do is we find one individual. We take them from homelessness to self-sufficiency through raffles, gifts, things of that nature. Um, You will find a raffle that we have going on March 25th for Tampa Bay Rays baseball tickets to the upcoming season. Um, and depending on how the raffle goes, maybe we'll throw some more stuff in there, uh, like this this basket maybe that you see behind me. But we'll see how that goes. But without further ado, uh, my guest tonight, his name is Cliff Panazic, and uh, he is known, you know, more commonly for Operation Stolen Base. But I ran across Cliff. I knew nothing about this here. I remember hearing about it in the news. Uh, back when, you know, I was in the feds watching ESPN and all this stuff. But um, I had no idea who this who this guy was. I just ran across him on TikTok, you know, doing his thing. And and uh, man, was he articulate and was he man, was he was he just saying the same things that I was saying? Right. And then I, I, I found out who he was and I looked into him and I'm like, wow. So um, I'm going to bring Cliff on and I'm going to explain to Cliff the appreciation that I have for him and why he is so important. So without further ado, let me bring on Mr. Cliff. How you doing, good, sir? And I appreciate it. Oh, man, thank you. You know, thank you for coming on and blessing my show with your presence. Um, You know, as I was saying... To, to my listener, Cliff, the reason why you're so important, I'm going to fix you a little bit here, bring you up. But the reason why you're so important, Cliff, is because you're, you're a dream of ours, being the incarcerated individual. And, and the reason why is because you, uh, you're, you're popular, you're, you're, your case went national, it was a national case. And... With that being said, we dreamed of of that inside where where these national cases, uh, these 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 sports figures or entertainers would go through the system and and go through what we've gone through because nobody listens to us. We're nobodies, right? We're we're nobodies. We're at the bottom of the totem pole, but you're you're a you're a national figure in some ways good or bad, you're still a national figure. And for you to come out and represent the way that you do, and I know I speak for thousands of us inmates that, that were inside, you know, is, is a godsend because the way that you're articulating the system is, is, is in a way that not many have 
that ability to do so. And that is why you and, and your message is so important. And, and I really appreciate you uh, making this your platform. Yeah, you know, you know, my biggest thing, and I appreciate that, I appreciate everything you have to say, is that, you know, part of my story is that, you know, this can happen to anybody in a simple lapse of judgment. You know, I, I would say I did everything right in life for, you know, 22 years, you know, private school, good grades, college, college degree, transitioned into professional baseball, uh, and in one simple lapse in judgment, uh, you know, which spanned, obviously, my crime spanned over a long period of time. Uh, but when I decided to kind of cross that threshold into a life of crime, and we'll get into the reasons of why and how that happened. Um, but what I'm saying is the reality of it is it can happen to anybody. Uh, and there's a lot of people in society that that don't give that, don't warrant that thought, right? That in one lapse in judgment, you could end up in the same place you ended up, I ended up. A lot of people think that the prison system is just for the heinous, hardened criminal. Uh, when in reality, the majority of people in there are people on low-level drug-type offenses that need rehabilitation, need to reintegrate into society, and need a second chance. Uh, and that's really, you know, I use my platform, I tell my story because that's what get atten gets attention, uh, but that's really the, the true message and what I want to speak on and what I try speaking on. Right, and, and that's, that is the premise of what my program is. You know, you have a lot of these individuals that, that come out of incarceration and they want to exploit it. And they be they themselves become no better than A&E or any of these other uh, big, big channels that that exploit the violence and the negativity of, of prison, you know, for for ratings, likes and subscribes and such. And whereas my channel, I don't really so much focus on the incarceration, because, listen, if, if that's what you want to hear about the, the suffering of man, there's plenty of channels for you to go to. I'm more interested in how. We as American citizens are being incarcerated at the clip that we are. I mean, we're, we're, we have almost three million people, American citizens, incarcerated in the land of the free. So I'm more interested in that versus what uh, uh, the travesty of, of the inside of prison really is. And that is, is, a, is a complete different story in itself. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and the thing I always say, and again, it's, you know, I feel like society is brainwashed to think that only the heinous, grotesque crimes and hardened criminals go to prison. But in actuality, it can and is anybody. Um, I always say, you know, if you've ever had a single drink and got behind the wheel of a car, you were as close to going to prison as, as I have. I don't be like, no, that doesn't happen. Except I did time with guys that were in prison for that, had a drink or two drinks, caused an accident. And, you know, they were a law abiding citizen other than one night they had one or two drinks and, and, and got behind the wheel of a car. So, you know, anybody can end up there. Uh, and you're right. What goes on inside the prison system um, is another whole story. I talk about it some, but, you know, I'll never be one to come on here and be like, uh, you know, my time was ultra violent or extortion. My time wasn't like that. My time was was super smooth inside the system, to be honest. Um, and, it, you know, I feel like in today's day and age, it can be if you know how to operate yourself and and conduct yourself with respect and, and polish. Um, but that doesn't mean mentally they're not still trying to break you down. And there is there is no rehabilitation, you know, which is the biggest problem. You know, so many people are there on low-level drug offenses, which is not me. I've never used a drug a day in my life, right? But I, I was in the system and I see it, right? So there's so many people there that need rehab. And instead, they send them to the prison environment, which is just 
more prevalent with drugs, right? So you send a drug addict into an environment where drugs are more readily accessible mm. rather than sending them to rehab, right? But but rehab costs money and prison makes money. So, you know, you make the determination of why that happens. It's pretty simple. And and this this folks is why I have them on the show because I mean that's 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 it in a nutshell and and the more people that we have saying the same thing. Now, you were up in the Ohio system, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. So I have this article, um, Operation Stolen Base, and this article was written by uh, Sports Illustrated, right? Yeah, November November 2017. By Luke Wynn. Yes. Okay. So you're familiar with this article. I'm uh, very familiar with the article, yes. Beautiful, because I, I, I was going to take a different approach to this show until I ran across this article. I was re- you know, looking at a couple of things, and I ran across this article. And I guess what particularly stood out to me the most about this article was, uh, aside for some of the, the errors in it, but and that, that drives me absolutely crazy, especially when you have a, a professional platform like Sports Illustrated. But with that that being said was that this was a story that really had no story to it. It was just really just labeling you for what you did. And we'll get into kind of the, the, the specificities of, of that because I'm, I actually want to go through this because it actually timelines uh, uh, your, your life in a, in a condensed version, I guess. But there, there was no, there was no, and no depth to it. There was no depth to this article as to why you did it. Um, none of that. So before we get into it, what was your take on this article when you were doing it and after you saw it come out? So, so I, I mean, I really have two takes on it. You know, for, for one, they did me a favor. Uh, even though I think the article is poorly written, uh, you know, it gives my story legitimacy, right? If no, If somebody doesn't know any of my story... I can direct them to the article. Here's a little bit of the backstory, whether or not, you know, I agree or disagree with it. Right. Um, and inside the prison system, and you know how that goes, uh, this is not to say that I'm proud of my crime or what I did, but in there you almost wear like a badge of honor, right? I was the guy in sports illustrated, um, and being in a state prison, um, where it is a lot of low level offenders, you know, you, you do what you do to have to kind of navigate the system. Right. So in there, you know, I was that guy. I was that guy in Sports Illustrated, and that you know that bought me a lot of respect in the criminal world, right? So you kind of just wear it and go with it in that environment. Um, but as far as the legitimacy of it, uh, you know, it's completely one-sided. It wasn't. Uh, it got turned into, you know, a uh, uh, hero and villain. I'm the villain, uh, and these this prosecutor, detective, FBI agent uh, are the heroes. Um, you know, the things that they won't mention in the article or didn't mention rather. Or that, you know, the prosecution decided to never track down a victim. You know, that's not to say there aren't victims on my case. Obviously, I defrauded people. Um, but how do you come up with the fact that it's the the crime is so severe that I have to serve six years in prison, but you can't even name on the record a single victim? There's not a single victim on the record, right? Um, and then you dig a little bit deeper after the article comes out, or even before the article came out. I'm sorry, my prosecutor was fired for misconduct. Uh, my detective ended up resigning a mixed uh, sexual assault allegations or sexual hus- uh, harassment allegations. Uh, my FBI agent is—he's passed away. He's no longer an FBI agent. There's nobody left from 
you know, from the prosecution. And, you know, you got kind of got to ask yourself why. Right. Hmm. Um, and, and we can get into that and how it was prosecuted and, and you know, kind of the shady things that they did. And that's not uh, me looking for sympathy. Right. Um, I committed a crime. I needed to go to prison for a certain amount of time. Um, but there are certain, you know, levels of constitutional rights that should not be violated, um, which were in my case. And if they're willing to do that to me over a forgery case, you know, you, you can see how just about anybody can put get put in the crosshairs. Uh, and I've, I've always said, you know, if they want you to go to prison, you're going to prison. It doesn't matter. Guilty, innocent, indifferent, black, white, female, male. If they want you to go to prison, you're going. And that's that's the bottom line. And 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 that's the case in in uh, so many innocents. And always the first one that comes to mind is is Temujin Kinsu. You know, Temujin Kinsu is an individual that's been incarcerated for forty years and still incarcerated. And this is one of the most notorious uh, innocent claims in America. But yet, because of the current administration up there in the state of Michigan and all the corruption that lies in that government up there. This man is still incarcerated. So people people don't understand. You know, people yeah, well, don't even, understand. Even recently, there's a, a news article that just came out on the last handful of days. A guy, a kid that was released after 18 years um, because the cops fabricated evidence uh, because they had a had a grudge against him. You know, so but, but my thing is so now he's free and, you know, thank thank God he's free. But what happens to these cops? They're not going to go to prison. You know, all these cops. These prosecutors, they have they have immunity, mm-hmm. they have immunity. Right. So what is the repercussion for them fabricating evidence against this man and costing him 18 years of their life? What they get suspended, maybe lose their job. They're not going to prison. You know, that now that you said it and I'm sitting there listening to you, <clears throat> I'm working with another innocent guy up in Mississippi uh, by the name of Curtis Davis, Jr. And I was just telling him the other day because he, you know, him and I are going back and forth about about some things. And and like I told him, listen, when I was fighting law, I had to understand that my head was in the lion's mouth. So even though that I knew, I knew, and this prosecutor knew that they lied, they know that they're lying. You cannot attack them from that angle. You always have to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? And give them these weasels. These are weasels of human beings. You have to give them an an opportunity to weasel their way out of the trouble that they know that they're in. So it's, that is the game that we have to play in order to get our head out of the lion's mouth because it's, it's atrocious, but so let me, let me go ahead and get into this article some, um, you know, they, they start the premise with, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to capture the emotion. You know, uh, you do not need to go far in professional baseball to experience a stranger asking for your autograph. In the summer of 2008, it happens to Cliff on fireworks night, which draws less meager crowds than usual for the Sussex Skyhawks and the Independent Canadian American Association. Between the final out and the start of the pyrotechnics, Kids line up, pens in hand, in the front row, just to pass the first, just past the first base dugout in Skyland Stadium. Now, do you remember that night? Is that true? Uh, I mean, I don't remember that night specifically, but you know, mo- that's that's how most nights were. Uh, that was that was every night. You know, we played 
uh, 13 out of every 14 days. Uh, and that was pretty much the scene after every game. Mm-hmm. Just young kids, right? What what ages were these kids? Oh, young young kids, anywhere from you know five to young teenagers. You know, there's they're uh, you know just kids that are looking up to us because you know that's the same dream they're they're ready to pursue. You know, so um, we're we're idolized in in their eyes in, in that city. Mm-hmm. So, and and the parents were there, right? Parents hoisting their kids up, getting you know trying to get autographs, the whole the whole nine, right? For sure, absolutely. So it's imperative, going on with the article, it is imperative to sign quickly. The clubhouse spread disappears fast. The Saviard veterans will book it uh, toward the grub, leaving the rookies to oblige to the kids. Now, what does that mean? Like the, the veterans will take off and, and, and leave you, the rookies, to deal with all the autographed kids, right? Yeah, pretty much. You know, there's a clubhouse spread after the game. Once it's gone, it's gone, you know, at, at that level of, of minor league baseball. Uh, you know, so the veterans are heading to the clubhouse and and us rookies or, you know, younger guys are, are left to deal with the crowd. But, you know, I always felt like that was part of the duty. So I didn't I didn't mind it. I did it. That was that was uh, comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. Now, as a backup catcher trying to get by on one thousand dollars a month. Panazetch, who grew up in a blue collar family near Youngstown, Ohio, and who has just been passed over in the June MLB draft following his senior season at ANAIA Martin Methodist in Pulaski, Pulaski Tennessee. Uh, can't afford to miss any kind of free meal. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Because uh, we were just low, low paid, low level paid. I was like I said, we were playing 13 out of 14 days. I'm making a thousand dollars a month. Like, you know, if you break it to break it down hourly, I'm probably making a uh geez a couple dollars an hour if that and this is in minor league ball right absolutely yeah you know we're playing in front of anywhere from two to ten thousand fans a night and how uh, much and are tickets to go to a minor league base- baseball game oh uh, you know games would have been like ten dollars ten dollars mm-hmm. a, a ticket got it okay so we're gonna skip ahead there's a picture of you uh fielding a pick in the dirt and then as as a picture here in the Can-Am League, uh, Panazic is just some 22-year-old with a cortisone-injected right arm that is killing him and a name that he assumes the local kids don't even know. That they still want his autograph is fascinating to him. He views autographs solely as commodities, things to be attained and sold. And he is well aware that right now the demand for his name, his signed ball, is non-existent. You want to speak on that? Yeah, you know, well, I mean, I, I was that kid at, you know, growing up at games, um, you know, asking any big leaguer for an autograph, not even necessarily knowing who it was or, you know, w- what position he played or anything. You were just fascinated by it. Um, but as I grew out of that stage, the whole idea of an autograph kind of mind boggles me, right? Like the thought of touching um, a pen or a marker to an object uh, gives it value. It's kind of, it's just fascinating to me. And it's really, you know, I have very surreal moments uh, now that I've been released where I kind of sit here and, and process that, that whole concept. Like I really spent you six years in prison because I touched a Sharpie to a baseball or to a photo or to a marker. Um, you know, when you think of a, 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 a criminal uh, instrument or a criminal weapon or anything. You're not thinking a, a pen or a Sharpie. 
Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's very surreal moments. And, um, you know, I make, I make jokes about it often cause that's, that's how I deal with it. Cause if I really like dug in deep to the core of it, it's like, wow, I really lost six years of my life for, for what, for what? Well, this is exactly what they mean, my friend, when they say that the pen is sharper than the sword, right? Because with that pen, you have the ability to, to manipulate, you know, manipulate people. And, and that is, that's where we'll get into the crux of, of, of things. But so then they got the picture of you up here at the bat, but let me share a story about that, right? Because I have some experience in this, right? So my older brother, um, my older brother used to hang out with some celeb types and one of the individuals he hung out with while I was growing up, I think I was 14, 15 at the time, uh, was uh, Roman Hammerlick. Roman Hammerlick was a defensive player for the Tampa Bay Lightning at that time. And this was his buddy, like Roman's hanging out with us. You know what I mean? He's, he's, we're hanging out and he's going fishing with us, which is a whole nother story in itself. But one particular night, we're coming out of the game and my brother and I are leaving from the player's exit. Now, when we're walking out now, Roman Hammerlick is a big deal. You know, he's got all of these women waiting on him and there's a whole crowd of people as we're walking out. And so everybody, he's just over here signing autographs, you know, this and that. And and um, I'm just over here being who I am. The young Thomas freed me at that time. I just like, no, I'm not signing no autographs, no autographs as I'm walking down, right? So some guy, he's holding a kid. No lies, I promise you. He's holding a kid like this. And he's like, well, who the hell are you? I said, man, you don't recognize who I am? He's like, no. I'm like, I'm AMA Supercross champion. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah. He's like, you want to sign my shirt? I said, yeah, man, I'll sign your shirt. Even though I said I wasn't going to sign none. So I go over here and I get a Sharpie from Roman. I walk over and I sign my name. Nobody else's name. My name on the back of his shirt. And he's, you know, the kid's like, ah, you know, this and that. But it was that feeling of like, wow, we go to his car, there's lipstick all over his car, there's phone numbers all over it. You know what I mean? Yeah, my father's watching. He says he's, he got his, his autograph on a hockey stick. But uh, so, it, yeah, it's that euphoria of, of acknowledgement. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as we get into my crime and, and how it happened, why it happened, uh, you know, I always say, and I say this always on social media, there's always an underlying reason, right? Like most people don't just roll out of bed like, hey, today I want to be a piece of shit, right? Uh, I'm going to go commit crime today. There's always an underlying reason, whether it be an addiction, a substance addiction, whatever. Um, and I'll always say I'm a gambling addict. You know, that's something I, I deal with. But deeper than that, at the core of that, I'm addicted to two things. Uh, and it's competition and attention. Uh, and, you know, that that came from baseball. And, and baseball fulfilled that, you know, through age 22, 23, 24. Um, you know, so when I get that taste of what professional baseball is and that attention, um, that level of attention, you know, playing in front of five, six, eight thousand fans, you know, kids wanting my autographs, um, you know, that level of attention when, when it gets stripped from me because of my injury, you know, now I'm looking to replace that. Right. And what do I replace it with? And, and we'll get into it. You know, that's just where I make bad decisions. I replace the competition with gambling and I replace the attention with partying, drinking, nightclubbing, chasing women, you know, all, all the wrong things. 
mm-hmm. but that's where it comes from right um and you know what do all those things cost you know all those things take money right and that's how that's how the the criminality aspect of it you know really evolves that's right and that's why they're at, that's why those things are put in places to take advantage the, i mean these are key locations that these these things are put in for a specific reason you know what i mean and 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 yeah, so we'll, we'll get into that. But moving forward now, we get to meet Detective Brian McGovern. So uh, how, the, how the article puts it up. The call that wakes Detective Brian McGovern in the early hours of October 11, 2013 seems at face value to be another instance of small town criminal uh, mundanity, 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 mundanity. Two addicts have been pulled over at around 1.15 a.m. in a gold Chevy Impala. A crack pipe is found in their armrest, and they fit the description of suspects in a string of property thefts from cars around the area. McGovern, a 38 buzz cutted and chipper 13-year veteran of the force, is one of just two detectives in the police department in Canfield, Ohio, population of 7,284. So, any thoughts on that? The crack pipe, all of that. What is that? Is this, was this just something that they threw in the... To the, the state of our country and how deep-rooted the, the drug epidemic is, right? So I've sat here and I've said I've never used a drug a day in my life. Not weed, not any... I've never been high in my life. Um, but at the core of it, you know, I go to prison over drug-related activity. That's what brings, you know, my, my operation down. So these two, April and John Blosser... Um, they got pulled over, like the article says, for having a cracked front windshield. They have drug paraphernalia. They also have stolen credit cards. The stolen credit cards track to some Walmart gift cards. I came in possession of some of the Walmart gift cards, unbeknownst to me. I didn't know they were bought on stolen credit cards. I didn't get them from April or John Blosser. I've never met them. I don't know them. Uh, but once they get the credit cards, obviously, they track it to the gift card. They track the gift card to Walmart, pull the surveillance footage, uh, you know, and they see me walking out of Walmart with a thousand dollars of, you know, baseballs, footballs, basketballs, baseball bats, whatever piece of, of unsigned memorabilia I could buy from Walmart. And that's kind of where the investigation starts um, and, you know, where where the breadcrumbs start to kind of fall. So but again, it's it's ironic enough that, you know, being that I'm, you know, so clean in the in the drug side of it, never been high. But really, my entire operation comes to a halt, and I go to prison still over drug-related activity. Mm-hmm. Now, see, the detective in me goes right to the question as to how does somebody get pulled over with a cracked windshield and they find a crack pipe in the car? How did that transition? Because you don't have rights to search and seizure on a on a cracked windshield. Um, so, I mean, that that automatically goes. But that, again, that's that's the analytical side of mass. But yeah, right. and, and obviously I don't I don't have any of those answers. Like I said, I don't <laughs> even know these people. Um, but an interesting part of the story is that uh, this April and John Blosser, and this is kind of comes into, you know, how this case was mishandled. Um, they got off. They didn't get any charges, not for the drug paraphernalia, not for the stolen credit cards. I was forced to plead guilty for the stolen credit cards. Right. So I've never met these people. They're not part, part of my organization. Uh, they tried to tell me that I hired them to steal credit cards, which is ludicrous. I was literally 
printing money basically hand over fist out of my bedroom. Why would I hire some drug addicts to steal credit cards? Doesn't even make sense. Um, but they walked scot free. You know, they didn't even get charged for that. They put that charge on me. So I have a identity theft, stolen credit card theft on my record. So that's from that, from that incident. Yeah. So that's what it says here. But then McGovern works for the detectives from three nearby towns, tracking surveillance footage of purchases eventually made with those gift cards and a not at all typical patterns reveal itself that two different gift card users, the Craigslist buyer, Stephen Durkin, and another unidentified white male. Why? I mean, OK, never mind. Let me keep going. <laughs> Each exit a Walmart store with a shopping cart full of footballs and baseballs and a third man, Anthony Satterelli. Correct. Yes. Is stopped outside a separate Walmart in the same time frame for stealing, stealing a cart yes. full of baseballs. Yes. So th those are the two incidences that cause everything is uh, April and John Blosser getting pulled over with a cracked front windshield and Anthony Satterelli getting caught trying to steal baseballs from Walmart, which again, uh, that was an associate of mine, but one of my associates tried to hire him to steal baseballs, which what are we doing here? We're, we're buying $2 baseballs and selling them for 50. Why are we trying to steal baseballs? Right. Um, but he gets caught and sure enough, he points the finger back at my associate. Uh, and then, you know, the, the rest kind of falls into place from there. So it's two drug related incidences that get the finger pointed back at me. Got it. Yep. So Satterelli eventually tells investigators he was given $120 to steal the Walmart balls by C.J. McCormick. Wasn't that a show? C.J. McCormick. An associate of Duncan's, McCormick Satterelli explains is involved in some kind of sports memorabilia business. McGovern is neither McGivern or McGovern. McGivern, McGivern. Mc, Mc, okay, doesn't matter. And neither a sports fan nor a memorabilia expert. The lone autographed item in his Canfield office is a poster for a minor league hockey team. Okay. Uh, then in January 2014, he gets a call from the FBI's Boardman, Ohio office. There's an agent up here who says he's working on a sports memorabilia case, the man says. Are you still doing something with that? Then they have a picture of these two guys with their guns out, their badges out, always. <laughs> I don't understand always. that. Yeah, super proud. This is their, uh, you know, 15 minutes of fame. So super yeah, proud. I, I don't understand. That. I mean, look at them. Why can't they smile for first and foremost? Why do they have to look like complete assholes? And why do they have to have their guns out? And you have one, the guy in the yellow shirt. I don't know who's who. Uh, okay, so this is your guy in the yellow shirt on the left, Brian McGivern. He's got his hand. Gone. He's got his hand on the gun. And a picture yeah, for Sports Illustrated. Yeah, he's he's a real tough guy. He, he uh Canfield, Ohio was one of the top 100 cities in the US a couple years back. So, you know, this was his, his career defining moment. So, he's he's super proud about it. It's That's what uh, he looks like. He looks like yeah. he just caught a a 15-foot shark and he's standing in front of it. That's what he looks like right there in that so picture. It's it's too bad he's lost his career and his job. So, that's Tough for him. Oh, tough, tough for this guy. Sorry yeah. to hear that. So McGovern finds himself on the line with veteran FBI agent Anthony Sano Sano. We're starting to ID some low-level guys, um, but we have this surveillance picture of a guy at Walmart, and we have no idea who he is. 
Sano sends an image to McGovern's phone, and they say, that's the guy. That's him rounding third base right there. That's him. Catch him. And at, at this point, at this point in time, when they connect these dots, I'm already gone. They're looking in Northeast Ohio for this ringleader of this operation. And I had moved. I was in Las Vegas, Nevada. I was out of Dodge. Uh, arguably, um, if April and John Blosser don't get pulled over with these credit cards, uh, I'm not sitting here with you today. Mm-hmm. And I got a comment from from one of my my good my good listeners. It said Hardcastle McCormick was the show. That's right. Hardcastle McCormick. That's what I was saying. I knew there was a show McCormick. That's the target of our investigation, says Sano, who at this point is working off of a vague tip that someone is selling fake signs, sporting goods out of Austintown, Ohio, and that someone played farm league baseball. Then they put the uh, the dramatic, the photo is one of Clifton J. Panizic. Got some nice cards in there, though. Now, these cards that they're showing, are are these cards that you signed? Yeah, these are uh, 8x10 photos I signed. Photos, okay. That's, so these are yep, photos. That's accurate. So it all started, Panizic will eventually say, with a working road trip, a 12-hour drive from Ohio to Tuscaloosa, Alabama in December 2009. But that was that was a hell of a month for me, boy. Let me tell you that. 2009 in December. Okay. What was I going through hell? And you're on a bus going to Tuscaloosa. <laughs> Panizic and Adam Bollinger, a Chick-fil-A truck driver whom Panizic met while chasing autographs outside of hotels and stadiums across Cleveland had agreed to split the cost of an expedition to Alabama where the number one ranked Crimson Tide football team was preparing to play in the BCS national championship game against Texas. So uh, Panizic's sole source of income at the time was a legit autograph business on eBay that he called Athletic Connections Sports Memorabilia and he knew that the tied items were in high demand. So you actually had a legit business on eBay doing. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So what, what people don't understand is, uh, you know, on the surface, while I'm playing professional baseball, playing minor league ball, even in college, um, you know, in professional baseball, yeah, I made $1,000 a month and I had other expenses covered or whatever, right? But I only get paid in season, right? So what am I doing the other, whatever, seven, eight months of the year? Well, if I want to progress in my career, Right. I got to be in training. I got a I got a hitting instructor. I got a personal trainer. I got a gym membership, a baseball facility membership. Plus, I'm at those facilities five, six, eight hours a day, five days a week. Right. That is my job. You know, I'm trying to progress uh, in professional baseball. That's my job. So how do you survive? Right. Um, So it was a legitimate side hustle, uh, you know, on the weekends, selling the stuff at night on eBay. And it was all legitimate for many, many, many years. Uh, and that's how I survived through college. That's how I survived through the couple of years of professional baseball I played because I wasn't making enough money uh, playing baseball to survive. It was a, a negative, a net loss. Um, play, playing professional sports, unless you get to the, the utmost level, is a net loss for every individual, for every family. There's no way around it. Now, in 2008, you you um you tried out with the Phillies. You worked out with the Phillies, right? No, no, I, that's actually that's not correct. No, uh-huh. I was I had a workout schedule, a one-on-one workout schedule with the Phillies uh, that I passed on because I had to have shoulder surgery. 
uh, which was kind of the beginning of the end of my career. Um, but yeah, I was supposed to work out for them and, and they were definitely interested in, in signing me. Uh, they saw me play uh, in Ottawa um, while my rookie season in the Can-Am League. And, you know, they, like I said, they were interested. And unfortunately, in the offseason, I find out, uh, you know, pretty much my shoulders mangled. Mm. Yeah, uh, two partial tears in his rotator cuff and one in the labrum. So what does that mean? How, how first, how did that happen? And if you know, or was this just over overuse of your arm? And and um, more importantly, like how, what was your thought process at this time where you know that this is something that no team is really going to kind of touch? Well, you know, it was definitely an overuse, an overuse issue. It was just over time, right? But that, you know, you dig a little bit deeper and it, it, it alludes to the fact of, you know, the problem in you know, lower level baseball, whether it be little league, high school, even college. Um, you know, I was a, a good enough player, a high enough level player um, that coaches and instructors didn't worry about me. They were kind of like, hey, you throw hard, do your thing, right? No one's giving me any any type of instruction. I'm just better than everybody. Uh, so mechanically, I was very flawed in my throwing motion. And that mm. that's what ends up causing my injury. Uh, so at the core of it, there's just not enough good coaching, period. Um, and they just kind of hung me out to dry because I was a good enough player. Um, and like I said, it was just overuse. I knew I knew I had something wrong with my shoulder my senior season of college because I played uh, on three cortisone shots, um, which I'm sure caused more damage. Um, but I went and saw a doctor at the beginning of the season. He kind of knew what it was. He said we needed to get an MRI. I kind of told him, like, Hey, if we find out something's wrong, my career is over anyway. So just kind of make it stop hurting and I'll deal with it afterward. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what happened. You know, I got through the season. I had a had a huge year as a as a college player, had a huge rookie season. By the end of the year, when the cortisone wore off, I couldn't lift my shoulder above my head. I knew I knew it was bad. Uh, But even going into it, um, you know, my surgeon pretty much assured me that I would come back full strength. So in my mind, I'm not even like, hey, no team's going to touch me. I'm still, you know, chipper, ready to attack this, attack the rehab. Uh, you know, I was two days out of surgery uh, in the in the gym on the stationary bike at my hitting facility, hitting with one hand, like two days out of surgery. I'm like, I'm doing everything I can to get back as quick as possible. Um, but that's just not the reality of it is that's not how the human body works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I just never recovered from it. Now, you play catcher, right? Yes, I was a catcher. So how did you so what was your throwing motion? More side to the side? No, so the the flaw with my mechanic was I cross stepped. I wasn't square in my bottom half. Mm-hmm. Um so I just put a, put a lot of torque on on my shoulder. You know, typically most throwing uh injuries come you know, come in the elbow area from Tommy John. Yeah, right. So from throwing sidearm or whatever, but that that wasn't mine. Mine was I cross stepped and uh I threw I threw too hard to cross step and I was putting too much strain on my shoulder to where, you know, eventually, you know, your, your body's not made for that. It popped. Yeah. So going in, cause, because this is the, some of the things that I want to really get into is, is like you said, where, where in your age did people really kind of start to notice that you were different? Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't say like my entire life I was some big time prospect like projected to 
to make it to the league or anything. I was I was good for where I was from, you know. So I was one of the top players in little league, one of the top high school players. Uh, but that didn't transition into college right away. So I wasn't uh, recruited by a lot of big schools. And, and coming out of college, I wasn't, you know, through my first three years of college, I pretty much had no no professional aspirations. I mean, I did. I thought I could play. Um, but probably not too many people around me thought I was going to make it into professional baseball. And I, and I thrived off that. I thrive off being the underdog, being doubted. That's the same thing I do right now, right? Um, and that and that's transitioned. But um, but I was good enough at the the lower levels to where you know I was one of the best players in the city. To where they're like, you know, hey, do your thing. You're throwing runners out at second base. You're hitting. Like we don't need to instruct you. We don't need to coach you. Go do your thing. You're winning. Um, yeah, right, right. I'm I'm pitching. I'm a pitcher, catcher, shortstop hitting throwing whatever and they just kind of let you be and, and that's wrong <laughs> mm-hmm. that's wrong but there's not enough uh there's not enough coaching there's not enough instruction to go around there's just and in not. and these small towns especially up in ohio like this this is all that they have and here you have this this young protege coming out that's that's doing phenomenal things so did you at any point ever feel like you may have been uh the the highlight of the town uh, man, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I'd say, high, I mean, Youngstown isn't, isn't a real small city, mm-hmm. but, uh, I, I, I would always say this. So, uh, the way I treated baseball, even in, like in high school was, uh, um, you know, the, the, the year is very cyclical, right? So during the spring, I'm the most well-known guy in my high school, mm-hmm. uh, you know, friend, a friend of everybody, everybody's a fan uh, in the other eight months of the year, I'm unknown. Right. So it's very cyclical. So, um, those spring months, yeah, I was one of the most well-known people in, in the city of Youngstown. Uh, the other eight months that are behind the scene while I'm in, you know, in their grinding training, whatever, you're basically in, in obscurity. Nobody knows you. Nobody knows what goes on behind the scenes. Nobody knows, uh, how much time, effort and finances it takes, uh, or the strain that it puts on families, um, which right. it, it is, it's a financial strain for sure. So going on, you find out about the injury. The article says it was depressing for Cliff, says his mother. It's the first we hear about your mother, whose, whose uh, name is also Rose. My stepmother's name is Rose as well, um, who believes it was even harder on her husband, Frank, a former steel mill electrician who, who, whose own pro ball aspirations were derailed first by a knee injury and then by his 1965 enlistment into Vietnam. Bless his heart. Shortly after high school, Frank thought he might live his baseball dream through Cliff. Then he had to give up on that too. Conveniently enough, they throw in there. But this is a picture of you and your father. And um, I I have a thousand of these as well because I also grew up uh, at the age of five playing t-ball and and such. And my father, same pitchers, would take me to the games and... and, um, and I, I think a lot of pressure with my father was uh, now me being an adult and understanding how athletically gifted my my DNA is, my body structure is. I think my father knew that as well. He was trying to implement that into his boys. And um, I think he saw something in me that I didn't see at the time. But of course, my father was my father and he didn't know really how to bring that out of me. But I didn't really... Uh, come into grips with how athletically inclined I was until I was in prison playing sports ball, 
you know, and, and like, man, we were out here, we were playing serious ball in there. You know what it's, I mean? It's, it's definitely serious in there. It's, it's definitely it's serious. For it's so, for real. So, and, and at the time in the feds, they don't do it anymore, but, but um, we had an all-star team that would actually play outside teams that would come in, college teams and whatnot. That's how serious this was. So uh, I have these pictures and, and, and I, you know, uh, at the mention of your father, I, I saw, you know, a little something out of you. Your father did pass away in the midst of all of this that was going on. Rest in peace. And, I, and I'm sorry to hear that. And, but that really kind of adds to the stress level that this particular family was going through in the midst of this, this tumultuous time. Um, how, how bad did your father want you to succeed in baseball? Uh, yeah, I mean, growing up, ath athletics in general, baseball was... Uh, that was me and his entire relationship. So we, uh, you know, we, we really had a, a contentious relationship probably until I got to college is when it started making sense uh, how and why he pushed me as hard as he did. Right. So uh, growing up, like I said, it was very contentious. Um, you know, we had so, so many battles on the baseball field, on the rides home, in the house afterward uh, that I can't even count. Very, very just, uh, uh, I don't want to say toxic, but um, a very up and down relationship. And it was all revolved around athletics. Um, but as I grew older, as I progressed in my career, you know, it all it all made sense. And then our relationship grew a lot more because I understood, you know, what he saw and, and how he kind of pushed my buttons uh, to get me to get me there. Right. And that, you know, necessarily wouldn't have worked with with any kid. Um, you know, there, we had problems, uh, other kids quitting cause my, my father coached too hard and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, but I, I was the one that made it. So it, it worked for me. Um, you know, and, uh, it was, it was tough for him. It probably took him longer to accept that I couldn't play anymore than it, it took for me. Right. So I, I knew my body. I finally like mentally knew it was kind of over, um, before he could really accept that, um, but it's a it's a very mentally taxing thing um, when your body won't let you do what you know you're you are capable of, right? When your body starts to change and you're no longer capable of the same things, that's a, a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, and how? Well, let me ask: did Did you want to be a baseball player as a kid, or or was you just kind of told that this is what you were going to do? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I started at age four and this is a story my mom always tells is, is at age four, uh, I stood in the outfield grass, picking dandelions, throwing them up in the, in the air, oblivious to what was going on in front of me, uh, to where by age five, there was a story where I was so excited for opening day of my little league season that I couldn't sleep. I got up in the middle of the night, got dressed in my entire uniform and went to sleep with my glove, pants, stirrups on everything. Because by age five, I knew that's the only thing I wanted to do in life was play baseball. Um, so it's it, it made the transition quick. And once I got there, that's, you know, baseball is all that mattered. And, uh, you know, everything that went along with it, like I said, I got good grades in high school. Uh, I went to went to college, got a college degree. But all that was just a means to an end, right? That was just what I had to do to get on the field. 
And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't take any of it serious. And I'm glad that you said that because that, that was going to be my next question before we, we start breaking down the crime is, is how important was education versus the sport? Uh, as, as a family, you know, it, you know, it's hard to say because if I, if I was failing or slacking in school, like it probably would have became an issue with my family, with my, with my mother specifically. Right. But because I'm going to school, uh, you know, school came easy to me. I got good grades. I, I got good test scores. Um, you know, actually before I accepted my athletic scholarship, I, I enrolled at a, a at Hiram College in Ohio on a $120,000 academic full ride uh, and dropped out after two weeks because I, I didn't, they didn't, to me, the school didn't take baseball serious enough. And so that wasn't a place for me. So I forewent, uh, you know, over a $100,000 academic scholarship. So, you know, mm -hmm. school and class just came easy to me. Um, so it's hard to say if I slacked, if I was failing or anything, you know, I probably uh, wouldn't have went the way it did with my family. But because I, I did the way I did, you know, we just, everybody, my mom, my dad, everybody just pushed, pushed sports, specifically baseball. So now you guys, you, you and, and Bollinger get, get in Tuscaloosa, right? And the first member of the Crimson Tide that you guys encounter and ask to sign is cornerback Marquise Johnson. I'm not familiar with that. Is he in the NFL now? Uh, he, he spent a couple of years in the NFL, not any longer. Got it. So the two, two, uh, two collectors had 40-odd white-paneled footballs each emblazoned with the Alabama's logo laid out in the rear bed of their SUV, and Johnson signed a few. Uh, he talked about getting paid to do the rest. We paid him up front, and he recruited everybody else to come and sign. He'd go into the dorm, grab a couple guys, $20, $30, depending on who the player was, and they'd all come sign 40-team items. So there's an actual uh, video that they have here. When it yeah, comes so to paying bills, is, uh, you don't want to be fashionably late. If you bank then, with Mid Florida, uh, you can get paid up to two days early. No gotchas, no uh, big bank uh, ball. Sure Mid Florida, stole, your life, uh, your money, your Facebook credit union. A friend, <laughs> but he denies uh, knowing who I am. So fu funny enough. Got it. You know, so, but uh, j just to touch on. Uh, you know, times have changed now, and, and now, you know, college players can accept money for, for things like this. Um, you know, but what they what they did to me was not wrong. These guys taking money for their autograph. Uh, a lot of the guys that came and signed these baseballs, when we would pay them $20, 40 $50, they, they just took it as like, hey, I can go get something to eat tonight, or hey, I can take my girl to the movies, or something like that. So to me, what they were doing was not wrong. But at that point in time, the NCAA for sure would have frowned on it. And, uh, you know, they could have been in serious trouble, which is also kind of mind boggling. Well, this is this is how we get a, a Jameis Winston who's who's stealing crab legs, you know, and gets caught on camera and, and ridiculed for it. And now, you know, this this, of course, now he never has to steal crab legs again. But that this is the issue, you know, and how much money did FSU make off Jameis Winston? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and times have changed now, and now there's the NIL deals, the name, image, likeness deals, and that's put an end to that. But you're right. You know, same thing with the uh, um, the tattoo scam with Ohio State and Terrell Pryor. Right. Uh, the same thing with Johnny Manziel, which, uh, you know, that's kind of a joke. He got suspended for one half of one game yeah. uh, for taking money for an autograph signing in Miami. 
but part of that money was mine. I had something to do with that with that autograph signing in Miami. Really? Um, absolutely, absolutely. That was a, a group of guys that I I had contact with. Um, but there was nothing wrong with that. Like, why why should these guys not be making money? Like you said, Florida State was making <laughs> how much? A hundred million off of Jameis Winston. Uh, he should be able to eat crab legs whatever night of the week that he wants. Right. He shouldn't have to go be stealing crab legs. So, so Panizic pays says Johnson was paid roughly two hundred dollars, but not everyone took money. Defensive tackle Terrence Cody, which I know that name, uh, was probably the biggest. Who's he played for now? I know he's in there still. No, right? so he uh, he played for the Baltimore Ravens. He got in some legal trouble as well, though. Got it. Okay. Uh, he got paid to sign all the team stuff, and then we heard he was interested in making some more money. So he came out, signed a bunch of mini helmets that he inscribed like two times All-American, two block field goals against Tennessee, very specific stuff. Uh, and you ended up paying around $400 in total. Uh, the video that we just watched, cornerback. Now, was that the cornerback, Rod Woodson, from the Steelers? No, 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 okay. no, no relation, no relation as it turns out. Got it. Okay. Um, here's a picture of Cody, Terrence Cody. I remember that shot. So now, although it took uh, Panizic and Bollinger nearly a week to gather the signatures they wanted, Panizic says they shelled out more than $1,000 to players. So you put out $1,000 of your own cash to get these signatures on this autograph stuff. And then I think uh, what it goes on to say is what, what the, the kick to the groin was as you get back and you find that people are already doing this on eBay. Uh, for yeah, half- so let me, let, me, uh, let, me, let me just give the truth to the story because this, this is not the truth now. Got it. Uh, yeah, really, absolutely the whole... Operation Stolen Base Crime starts at this point in time. So we're down there in Alabama. Uh, there's some specific key players we weren't able to find. Mark Ingram, Julio Jones, uh, Rolando McClain are, are the three biggest ones. Um, and, the, and the scheme really is devised in a hotel room in Tuscaloosa where it wasn't actually a me. It wasn't me. It was Adam picked up the Sharpie. It was pretty much like, hey, if I throw the rest of the names on these balls, like, let's get out of here. And that's how it started. It started with him. Um, he signed the rest of the team balls, like filled in the players that we were missing. Uh, and then, you know, once you cross that threshold, there's really no no turning back at that point. So on the way back home, on the drive, we kind of devise a plan uh, to sell, to sign and sell all of our remaining memorabilia. You know, every trip you go on through the season, you have leftover pieces here and there, mini helmets, footballs, jerseys, whatever it may be. Uh, and that's where it started. Adam signed all of it. I sold all of it. But but what was that? What was that discussion right there, Cliff, between Adam and, and y'all? Was it just something? Hey, man, let me just sign the rest of these balls, and everybody's like, okay, let's do it. Or was it like, hey, man, what we're doing now is like, yeah, I mean, really, it was just uh, you know, so I I knew the nature of the autograph industry, right? I know there's guys sitting at home signing the stuff, making money, and I I just never crossed that threshold. Um. And this this trip was kind of the kicker. We were down there a handful of days. It's about to be Christmas. We both want to leave, get home. Like Tuscaloosa isn't the most happening city in the country, right? We're just kind of holed up in a hotel room, spending money, chasing down these kids. And uh, 
you know, he wants to leave. I want to stay. I'm like, I, I don't want to leave until we get these these players because to me these balls are, are worthless without, you know, the three key players off the team. And that's at the point in time where he's like, you know, what if I just do them? Like, shit, let's go then. <laughs> let's yeah. go. I'm ready to get home too. I'm tired of spending money. Uh, and and the, the true part of it is, is while we're down there, you know, there are Alabama team signed balls popping up on eBay that are selling for large amounts of money. And we're down there. There's no one down there. So where are they coming from? Mm. Right. There's no one down there but us. Uh, so I know what it is. And, and that was kind of that was a sour, uh, sour moment for it. Um, and that's kind of what what turned the tide, what, you know, what caused caused me to, to cross the threshold. Now, Bollinger goes uncharged in the case and tells SI that he never, in fact, forged autographs at all. Yeah, sounds like a good story. (laughs) (laughs) Either way, by February 2010, Panizic had discovered he could passively sign and sell his own items. His first forged signatures mimic players from the 2009-10 Kentucky basketball team. Uh, Panizic had once been kicked off UK's campus while hunting, in parentheses, free, uh, John Wall autographs. Now, Panizic could print as many 8x10s of Wall as he wanted, sign them, and sell them on eBay for at least $50 a piece. So, is all of that is true? That's, you just... Yeah, absolutely, all true. Yeah, so once that ribbon uh, that was cool. cut, you guys just took off. Yeah, so like I said, me, me and Adam had an arrangement for a little bit. That kind of dissipated. I figured out I could do it on my own. Uh, you know, beginning of stages, it was it was difficult. It was hard. Practice, practice, practice. Sign one photo. Um, that's not what it you know uh, evolved into. Uh, you know, it evolved into to me. It's it's very simple to this day. Um, I probably have three hundred signatures I could do off the top of my head sitting here right now, which is uh, kind of crazy. But um, but it definitely started with Kentucky basketball. That was the hottest hottest team, hottest items at the moment, and. Like I said, once I crossed the threshold, it's kind of like no turning back. You get addicted to how easy it is. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't full go, you know, so I still I still ran, uh, you know, the legitimate part of the business. I was still going out there getting autographs. Uh, just what changed is, you know, I would go somewhere somewhere, get an autograph of whatever. Say I would go to Baltimore and get a Ray Lewis autograph. I would take a picture of him signing the autograph. And then mm. poof, I'd have ten of them. That's that's really how it went. So right, okay. So you come home after the Picos League's game. You and your roommate would have stacks of items waiting for you to sign with names like Mike Trout and Bryce Harper. So they were going out and getting these actual signatures, bringing them back for you to mimic. No, so at this at this point in time, uh, the operation was so deep. That, uh, you know, I was still trying to resurrect my career. I played in 2012 uh, in Houston, in Houston, Texas, and then eventually uh, New Mexico. Um, that I had two of my associates travel with me while I was going to play so they could run the operation. Um, and they would go out and they would buy baseballs, print photos, buy baseball bats, whatever, while I'm out at practice, out at a game, uh, and have it lined up for me to sign when I got back. And they'd turn around and sell it the next day. Um, and that's how, you know, that's how I paid, uh, really, that's really how I supported myself to play baseball that final season, because that final season definitely was a a net loss. I wasn't getting paid. I was getting paid $50 a week. Um, 
and paying for a hotel room, you know, mm-hmm. while fans are watching me play baseball in my final season, paying to watch me play. Uh, so that's the state of, you know, low level professional baseball. That's all a scam and a hustle too, uh, to be completely honest. So now the the viewers are looking at a picture of uh, the two detectives in a sports room of memorabilia, holding footballs and baseballs. And then I see a signed Tebow jersey. There on yeah, the that's, also, that's also probably the most athletic thing either one of them have ever done is hold that baseball bat and football <laughs> in the picture. So. And then I think um, I see over there Jared McCoy. Is that Jared McCoy, number 12? Uh, Colt, Colt, there's Colt McCoy over there. Okay, Colt I McCoy. Him. Yeah, Percy Harvin, Peyton Manning, Tim Tebow. Uh, but it didn't matter. I could do anybody. I did anybody, sold anybody, movie actresses, musicians, whatever sold at the time. So, Oh, so you even got outside of the sports and, and moved into the entertainment and whatnot. Whatever sold. Whatever, whatever sold. Whatever sold. You know, a new Avengers movie would come out, and I'd have a poster with the whole uh, cast and crew on it. So whatever was hot at that moment, it didn't matter. So... You you got your mom involved in this, um, essentially just by explaining to her about this this package deal. Her just you know dealing with the packages or whatnot, and then somewhere along the lines, I think you you mentioned here in the article that you don't know when, but you knew that she kind of knew what was going on, but was just trying to help her son. Yeah, you know so. Um, and this isn't to uh, rationalize why it happened, right? Um, you know, but my mother was was the caretaker for both my grandmother and my father. My father was in bad health, as the article discusses. Uh, my grandmother was in her 90s, um, and she was the caretaker for both of them from, you know, uh, probably 2006-ish, you know, through both of them passing in 2016 and 2017. Um and that's, that was like her full-time job. So this was my way of allowing her to not have to go out and work. She, she was a manager at Walmart. Um, she didn't have to go back to work. She stayed home. She helped me with things I need done, such as the shipping on this operation, um, and was able to stay home and be a full-time caretaker. So again, that's not to rationalize why I did it. Obviously, I went about it in the wrong ways, made the wrong decisions. But uh, that was a way for me to provide for the family um, to where they could be taken care of. Mm. Was that like a dream of yours? You know, that man, when I make it to the big leagues, I'm gonna buy mama a house and, and all of these things. Oh, I mean, of, of course, growing up, that's a, that's a dream. You know, you, you see pretty early on in professional baseball though, what, what it is. Um, and it's, man, it doesn't just take talent. It takes luck to get, to get that far, to get one of those type of contracts and everything. So, um, like I said, once, once I lost my career, um, I lost a lot of my purpose. Um, and and once I fell into this and, you know, money's kind of rolling in, this was, uh, you know, a way for me to provide for the family and, and provide an opportunity, really not even so much for my mom as it was an opportunity for my father and my grandmother to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. So one of McCormick's ex-girlfriends, who will not be implicated in the case, details for investigators how Panazich recruited McCormick into the business. She says that she has witnessed Panazich forging items, calls him an expert, and says that together the two men have sold items through scores of eBay accounts they created using the names of friends, relatives, and acquaintances. An aunt of Panazich 
who has not been implicated, also calls the police. eBay has mailed to her a tax form that references $64,000 in profit. She says she knows nothing about. In February, she provides investigators with the ball inscribed with what appears to be Mike Trout's autograph that a buyer mailed to her intended as a return. Fact or fiction? Uh, mostly fact, uh, aside from the part that she had no knowledge of what was going on. She was completely complicit in the operation. She made money off the operation. Um, so that's that's all completely fabricated. Uh, and as it says, she went uncharged, faced no criminal prosecution because, you know, she basically outed me uh, in a lot of instances. But, you know, her involvement was she knew what the situation was. She knew uh, what I was doing. Uh, and as the article says, you know, we always needed new eBay accounts, new new names, email addresses, addresses. You could only, you know, an eBay account would go bad after so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would and she would come to me with her friends' names, her name, her son's name, uh, and ask me if I if I would use their names so they could make some money, so she could make some money. Um, and I didn't even need them. I didn't need her names at this point in time. We knew how to make uh, eBay accounts in fake names with fake with you know track phones and fake addresses and fake email addresses and the whole nine yards. I didn't need her names, uh, but I did it because she asked me as a favor um, and she made money and her friends made money. And then, you know, as you can see the article, she turns around and uh, is one of the people that's, uh, you know, a cooperating witness. Well, of course, because in reality, at this point, you, everybody already sees you're the fall guy and everybody's just trying to put they're theirs into your cup. So they're, they're just trying to get the hell out of this mess, you know? And then now you have, uh, well, but it isn't until investigators subpoena eBay for access to any account whose profits flow to Panazich. McCormick or Jason Lindsay, a former high school acquaintance who works for Huntington Bank, where 26 PayPal funded accounts have been opened in either Cliff or Rose's name, that the magnitude of things takes shape. By November 2014, investigators have discovered that more than $1 million in eBay sales to 16,000 plus potential victims across the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, and they believe that there's plenty left to find. Fact or fiction? Uh, Basically fact. Yeah, fact. For sure. So over a million dollars in sales. Yeah, I mean, it was it was more than that. As we get into the article, I think the number they finally put on it is like two point five million um, total. Uh, but what they don't say, you know, is they don't break that number down. You know, mm-hmm. they just kind of want to say I made two point five million dollars. Right. Which is not the case. Um, you know, they that's across 20 different people in the operation. Uh, that's counting the cost of product, the money eBay took, the money uh, the shipping companies took, um, you know, I'll, I'll step out there and say, I probably made seven to $800,000 over five years, mm-hmm. right? Which is a lot. It's significant. It's a lot of money. Um, you know, but when they see, when they came and raided my house, they're asking me like where the stacks of cash are and they're going to, uh, rip out the walls to find the money. Like, I, like, what are you talking about? I'm making 10, 15, $20,000 a month. I have $8,000 in bills and I'm a degenerate gambler living in Las Vegas that goes out and parties every night, you know? So what money are you talking about? I'm, I'm spending the money as quick as I'm making the money 
at this point in time. So um, the funny part is, and it's uh, it's Brian McGivern. I would always say this. He said this multiple times. Uh, you know, he said, if I wasn't such a such a degenerate, you know, I could have had a big a big chunk of money saved up hmm. for, for for who? Yeah, <laughs> a big chunk of money for who? You know, they'd have, they'd have came and swooped in and taken all that. It would have been a big chunk of money for them. Yeah, well, exactly. And that's that's what they were hoping to find was a big stack of cash. Absolutely. So, uh, let's see. From his Canfield office, McGovern monitors Panazich's increasingly audacious social media activity. Um, da, da, da. Moving forward, here's some more pictures of these guys in front of their, their shark I mean, look at this is ridiculous, man. These these pictures. Yeah, you know, actually, I got I got a comment here, and I don't know how we came up on this one, but they they asked if uh, if I gave a statement and I gave names, um, and uh, just just to touch on that real quick, I don't know how you can come up with that. You know, I got seven co-defendants. I'm sorry, nine co-defendants, seven of which got probation. Two did 18 months. I did six years. You know, so who who gave up who? Right. <laughs> like, so uh, that's not true. That's yeah. Not true. Well, and and a lot of people don't understand uh, the 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 process. You know, they they don't understand the process. And I think what they're what they're probably referencing is is a couple times in the article where I mentioned you know your cooperation with them and saying no, it wasn't me. This person is the first one that actually did it, um, and such. Right. Just before 8 a.m. on December 1st, 2014, one FBI agent, two police officers from Canfield and 11 from Henderson, Nevada Police Department, surround a Spanish tile roof rental house in Henderson subdivision. There is a little expectation of danger, but McGivern's anxiety level is off the charts. I mean, look at these pictures. I, I, I promise you his anxiety level was off the charts. If the search warrants that the investigative team are about to serve at this two-story house on Sand Hill Sage Road, as well as Panazich's parents' house nearby, plus Lindsay to McCormick addresses in Ohio or dead ends, uh, McGovern knows he'll never live it down. So now they come to you. Uh, a Henderson lieutenant peers into a street-facing garage window and starts to laugh. Talks about this, the piles of stuff you have in the garage. They go, they knock on the door. You come wearing T-shirts and shorts. You remember that? Yep, December 1st, 2014. Never, never forget it. Never forget it. So, uh, yeah, I was actually at the time, that's crazy enough, was I was having a little bit of a problem with one of my neighbors, um, and when my, my roommate came running up the stairs saying the police are at the front door, that's that's what I think this is. He fails to mention that when he looked out to people, it was like 11 police officers <laughs> and, and FBI agents. Um, he failed to mention that part of it. He just said the police were at the door. So, uh, yeah, I opened the door and I immediately know. I mean, I immediately know what it is. Mm, yeah, yeah, me too. I knew what it was. As soon as they knocked on the door, I knew what it was. So what they find inside of the bachelor pad, a neon Miller light sign, pool table, golf clubs, hats, mail scattered about, and part memorabilia warehouse. Autograph items are littered everywhere, covering even the floor of Panazich's master bedroom. Blue Tim Tebow Florida jerseys, Spalding NBA basketballs, bearing Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. Uh, 
NCAA basketball with Wall's autograph, um, so on and so forth. Even a World Authentic memorabilia Barack Obama official Major League <laughs> Baseball. Yeah, absolutely. What what they don't mention is, you know, the lead up to this, and uh, you know, as I touched on, I was a I was a big big gambler out here in Las Vegas, um, and in November, in late November. I went on my biggest sports gambling, sports betting run in my life. I made 110,000 in 10 days. Um, mm. But even so, you know, that wasn't enough. Um, but in my mind, I was like, you know, let me take some of this money, invest it in this operation, uh, run this out through Christmas, through the Super Bowl. And, you know, maybe that's a, an end in sight, light at the end of the tunnel of how I can get out of what this operation is. So when they raided my house, you know, they were actually disappointed with what they found. They expected to find more than what they found, more cash than what they found. But the reality of it is, is there was never more memorabilia in any one of my houses in any city ever than at this moment when they raided my house. <laughs> this, was, this was the worst time ever um, because of that money I had. You know, I actually I, I spent like fifteen thousand dollars on unsigned memorabilia. What they won't tell you is that uh, I bought a, another collector's entire collection for $20,000 of all authentic memorabilia. So when they raided my house, there was about 40 or $45,000 of authentic memorabilia that they'll never admit. They'll never admit it. Mm. But that's still in their storage facility is like $40,000 of authentic, legitimate, true, uh, like tan to God, authentic memorabilia. Hmm. Interesting. Right. But, you know, but that's why that's why the case doesn't go federal, because there were feds there when they raided my house. The FBI was there. So um, but after that, I never hear from the FBI again. Um, and what I've been told is that uh, they weren't able to distinguish between what was real and what was fake. So that they really would have had a difficult time prosecuting the case, whereas the state steps in and they just said it was all fake. Um, and to this day, you know what I pled guilty to was all of it being fake, which is not true, which mm. is not true. Uh, but, you know, on the state level, they they play a pretty shrewd game. Uh, they don't really play by the rules. Uh, and I had no I had no outs, you know, once they start leveraging my mother and everything. So, yeah, I end up pleading guilty to it all being fake. But that's that's not true at all, at all. So on the desk in his bedroom, police find metallic ink pens and Sharpie markers and clear plastic cups. They turn up text on Panazic's iPhone explicitly discussing forgery. They seize additional stacks of certificates of authenticity with phony business names like Game Day Sports Authentics that are being printed in-house, plus more than 30 burner cell phones with names written on their cheap black casings in yellow or purple ink. One of Panazic's assistant roommates in Henderson, Stephen Mulichak, tells, yep. tells police that eBay requires its accountants to be linked to a phone number. When anyone calls a phone attached a male name, Panazic answers. When anyone calls a female name phone, Rose, who, was also helps, who also helps with shipping, answers. Let me ask you, how aware is eBay of these fraudulent schemes? Oh, they're probably super aware. They just don't care as long as they're getting their 15%. Right. So, and is there uh, ever uh, any repercussions or any insight into into that? Like, does anybody ever, or do they just allow eBay to host fraudulent activity? 
yeah, basically eBay is never going to be held accountable. Uh, effectively, that's why there's no victims in my case is, uh, you know, what I heard was that eBay quit cooperating once they realized the attention this, this case was getting. Um, and obviously the prosecution has the power to subpoena the records and get the names of victims. But once they had me in the crosshairs and, and had their guilty plea, uh, you know, legitimately, they don't they don't care about the victims. They cared about their news story. Um, and that's why, you know, eBay faces no repercussion, arguably, of the entire operation. If they say it was two point five million dollars, uh, eBay would have, uh, you know, about three hundred and seventy five thousand dollars that could be paid back to the victims. You know, but that was never, never pursued. Mm. Because, again, it's not about the victims. It's about a news story, which is what this got turned into. Right. That's a good point. Right. So, well, go ahead. Yeah, well, because, you know, they, they say, uh, you know, Brian, this is Brian again, Detective McGivern, um, always claimed that they never sought restitution because I didn't have any money. There was no restitution to be had, um, which you know the system well enough to know that's never stopped the government before, hmm. right? They would have garnered my garnished my wages till the day I died if they wanted restitution. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, eBay has plenty of money. Um, yeah. and that would have been and that would have been three hundred seventy five thousand dollars of the alleged operation is eBay fees that they could have recovered. So why didn't they? Mm. Because it doesn't because it doesn't matter. They don't they don't care. It was just a media fiasco. Uh, and you can see by the pictures in the Sports Illustrated article, what this was really about. You know, these guys with their their chest puffed out, hand on their gun, like they accomplished something. Which, I mean, they did. This is the, the biggest moment in their life. Right. Um, but, uh, but it takes a special kind of individual to relish in somebody's downfall. This whole, this whole case, this whole crime could have went, uh, the prosecution could have went way differently. Um, but I always took it as personal. And uh, it's not supposed to be personal. It's supposed to be based on uh, facts and the truth uh, and and rational, reasonable punishment. Uh, and it wasn't. It wasn't. It was just based on it being personal. Um, you know, the prosecutor called me a son of son of a bitch in the middle of the courtroom um, for for no reason. I'm, I'm not even speaking in court because I have a paid attorney and I'm getting called a son of a bitch. I mean, that tells you all you need to know that the prosecution was was personal in this case. And I still don't know why to this day. Yeah. What McGovern search team does not find is much in the way of money. Authorities do seize 18,200 rubber band uh, dollars rubber banded inside a zippered envelope under a guest room mattress. But Beltrame claims that belongs to him. This is surprising given the volume of eBay transactions and the fact that Operation Stolen Base has turned up in two Nevada bank accounts under Rose Rose's name that received $174,531 in PayPal profits before being cashed out. And here's a picture of Rose, and I'm guessing her attorney. Correct, yes. Yeah, so that's, uh, I mean, that's that's accurate. And again, you know, I'm not going to dispute the amount of money I made. Uh, which I said, like I said, it was probably profits seven, eight hundred thousand, um, you know. But that that's over a course of five years, you know. So how far does that go? That's not to diminish how much money it was, um, 
But again, you know, I was addicted to the things I was addicted to, which was gambling, partying, drinking, going out. Um, you know, so how far does that get you living in Las Vegas? You know, I was spending it as I was making it. Um, so there was nothing to be had. And that $18,000 uh, was what I already alluded to. James Beltrami was the collector whose collection I bought. Uh, and he had delivered it to my house and I paid him in cash. And uh, they actually had no right to that $18,000 because James is not implicated in this case. Uh, and they forced me to forfeit that cash. Um, so in my forfeiture specification, I had to forfeit $18,000 found in my house, even though it wasn't mine. Um, and James really had a claim to that money. Uh, but because of the threat of prosecution, you know, basically they threatened him as an accomplice, even though he wasn't, um, he, he backed off and they, and they get, they keep $18,000. Um, and that $18,000 went directly to both departments, the Mahoney County prosecutor's office and the Canfield police detector police office. What do you mean? It didn't go to your restitution. I don't have restitution. Oh, again, there's no, yeah, again, there's no, oh, that's right. Because they didn't Right, right. Okay. Right. Right. So because there's no restitution, where does that money go? Right. Where does that money go? Hmm. Right. To the offices, to the police department. So we skip ahead now. Now you're sitting, you're sitting in the office with, uh, Mahoning County's assistant DA. And he says, I'm curious. Uh, his name is Desmond, Martin Desmond. So he says, I'm curious. He wants to see how good you are. And he asks you to sign a name. You tell him, say one. He says, LeBron. You say number, no number. He says number. Six or 23, do both. Panazic signs two variations, one the way James signed it during his first stint with the Cavs, the other way he did it when he was with the Heat. And one of the Ohio policemen at the table fires up his iPad and finds a real LeBron, and they compare it with Panazic's work. And to them, it's, it's difficult to tell apart. Then I have a picture of, again, more, just a whole room full of stuff. Now, all of this stuff is what you went through. I got Correct. Ba so, basketballs, yeah. Yeah, so like I said, we, we signed everything. Everything was on the table, whatever was hot at the time. But, you know, pictured in, in, that, in that picture right there is a whole lot of authentic memorabilia, a whole lot. Um, but they'll never tell you that. They'll never admit to that um, because as soon as they admit that I sold any authentic memorabilia – uh, you know, the whole case, uh, mm. the whole the whole case is, is fraudulent, basically, because like I said, they made me plead guilty to every transaction being fraudulent, which is not true. So that that admission will never happen. So you you plead guilty to one to one first degree, three second degree and four third degree felonies ranging from telecommunications fraud to money laundering and he's agreed to a sentencing recommendation of three to seven years. Uh, over dinner, Panazic tries to explain how his mother got involved. Initially, he says, which you, you, you went into explaining um, how she got involved. Uh, so you, you sign this plea, and now you're going to prison. Here's a picture of you now in, in, um, in prison garb. How uh, how prepared were you? I mean, uh, you know, so like we already talked about, I mean, mentally, it probably wasn't even real yet. So, um, you know, my my plea was based a lot off of my father's health condition, health condition, um, you know, and a lot of these stories are going to come out in other projects I have going on. But, uh, 
you know, the way they got me to plead guilty. And again, it's not because I'm not guilty of conduct, right? But when you look at my charges, I'm not guilty of at least four of those felonies. They just get thrown in there to leverage my plea. Um, they locked my mother up um, on a fabricated probation violation. She got mm -hmm. probation on the case as she deserved because there were other people making way, way more money than she ever made on the operation that got probation. Um, they basically fabricated a probation violation against her saying that she refused to cooperate, which is not true. She showed up to testify my grand jury, um, which she was required to do. Um, and instead of letting her testify, they just violated her probation threw her in County jail, uh, rescheduled her probation violation, her PV hearing, uh, but never set a new date. So basically she was held, uh, as a hostage, I, I would say with never, never going in front of the judge. Um, and they went to her and told her she wasn't getting out of jail unless I pled guilty. The actual, the actual quote that Martin Desmond, uh, said to my mom is that you're not getting out of jail to go take care of your dying husband unless your son pleads guilty. Uh, and I have that on audio recording and that's, mm. that's going to come out at a, at a later time. It's, uh, it's disgusting that I can't get that admitted into evidence in the court because they cover up for each other. Um, but that's how they get my guilty plea is because my dad's health. Um, so while I'm out awaiting sentencing, um, you know, I spend 75 days in ICU, uh, basically watching my, my father succumb to death. And then I get sentenced 15 days later. Um, so it's uh, it's a very surreal moment in time that the reality of what was going on probably doesn't even fully set in, right? And maybe uh, maybe it's maybe it's possibly for the better mentally that you know I didn't really have time to process what was about to happen or what was going on. I just kind of uh, was sleepwalking through each day um, because I'm still I'm dealing with the the residual effect of losing my father. Mm. Um, but you know, on the flip side, I'm still dealing with that effect because how do you mourn the loss of a parent while you're also, you know, in prison effectively fighting for your life, not fighting physically. Cause you know, like I said, my time was smooth, but uh, mentally, you know, it's a daily battle. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was, I was, uh, I was in an institution where an individual was waiting on his his family to come visit. There 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 were several instances on this, but um, the whole family was was tragically killed on the way to the prison in a, in a horrific car accident. And here we're in the dorm. This guy he's he's waiting on his visit. Don't know why visit isn't coming. The whole day goes through. Then finally the chaplain comes later that night, comes to his door and tells him, "I'm sorry, but your family was killed in an accident on on the way down here to visit you." This is the news that he gets in his cell through a door from a chaplain. No hug, no, no empathy, no nothing like that. But so why, Cliff, are you now doing what it is that you're doing? There's, there's a couple comments, and one of them states, uh, I'm confused. It sounds like tonight's guest feels like he should not have done six years for defrauding individuals. Um, well, let me, well, let me touch on that real quick. Let me ahead. touch on that because, uh, because there is precedence in this, right? There's other cases that have been prosecuted for a way larger dollar amount than what I was allegedly found guilty of. Um, and nobody in history for sports memorabilia fraud ever did six years. Nobody in history for sports memorabilia fraud ever did three years. 
Um, nobody for sports memorabilia fraud ever got prosecuted on the state level or for racketeering. Um, every instance that ever happened, it was on the Fed level for mail fraud. Uh, and if I get prosecuted on the Fed level, you know, I go serve my my year and a half, two years. Um, and like I said, this story is being told a lot different because that's that's a fair punishment. Um, the other side of it is people don't understand the difference between what my prison sentence was, my my time in prison, whereas if I would have went federal or state, right? If I got charged federally, I would have went to a white collar Fed camp, right? Right. Yeah. My time would have looked like uh, the shit you see on Wolf of Wall Street with Jordan Belfort out yeah. there playing tennis and playing golf. And that's what my time would have looked like on the state level. There's no separation of crime. Right. So I'm in there with the heinous, hardened criminals uh, mm -hmm. that deserve to be there. The rapists, the murderers, the gangbangers. I'm in there with them. Um, and again, my time was smooth. But mentally, there's residual effect to that. Absolutely. Right. There's there's absolutely residual effect to doing time with murderers and rapists and 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 killers than there is doing time with uh, tax evaders embezzlers money launderers. There's a difference. <laughs> um, yes, but, yes, you know, there pro is. Pro prosecutors don't see it that way. They don't care. It's not even that they don't see it that way. They just don't care. So did I deserve time? Absolutely. And and my time did me some good, but it didn't take me six years to figure out. Uh, what I was doing wrong in life, what my purpose was, and what I needed to do going forward. Amen to that. Uh, another question. Uh, did any of his associates go to prison with him, or was he the only one who went down for this? So there's, uh, I want to say there's nine of us that got charged. And I have the tree uh, up, this this tree that they have. Oh, yep. Okay. So two, two, four, six, seven. You're right. There's not, I'm sorry. There's 10 of us that got charged. Three of us went to prison. They got sentenced to they got sentenced to three years. They both got out after 18 months. I got six years. I served every day of my six years. Um, so I'll, let me touch on that real quick because, um, you know, them getting their three years uh, was just um, was kind of a hoax to me. Right. They got three years so they could give me double six years. But they both got out in 18 months while having institutional drug infractions. Um, I get out. After six years, I served every day of mine. They they denied my early release, um, and really the only infraction I had in prison was a uh, I got an infraction for having my COVID mask pulled down over my chin, and that's why I had my early release denied. While they got theirs approved for while having drug infractions, so their three years was just a you know was just a hoax to justify giving me double, giving me the six. But in reality, they did eighteen months, and arguably, if they gave me thirty six months. You know, again, this story is different. I probably would have did my time and, uh, you know, that would have been a, a fair, a fair punishment. Amen. So I have a couple comments here. Um, I'm going to wrap, wrap up with a couple of these comments and then we'll just dialogue on that a little bit and then, and then have some closing statements. But my, my stepmother Rose, she says, after hearing this story, I do not believe I will ever buy any sports memorabilia again. Um, Another commenter says, I will have to go to a signing day. Oh, Miss Yvette Harvey says, I will have to go to a signing day or catch someone at a game. And then Rose continues and says, I have never been interested in sports memorabilia. However, my husband has, my father, and has a few re real legitimate items here from the sports people over the years. How do people know that it's real or not real? They don't. They don't. 
So the nature of the industry is to the point where um, if I don't physically see something signed by my own eyes, I don't believe it to be authentic. So, yeah, I got I got caught for what I did through eBay. Um, but there's people at every levels operating behind a veil of secrecy in these big companies such as James Spence Authentication, Panini. Um, and they're, you know, they're doing the same thing, but they're just operating, you know, behind the veil of their their company um, and, you know, basically just a blinded uh, sports memorabilia market. Um, so, yeah, I, unless I saw something with my own two eyes, I'd never, never believe it to be authentic. Um, final comment from Miss Yvette Harvey. Because of situations like this, proof is needed nowadays. How does that resonate with you? As far as, again, about the industry, um, you know, there's there's no, you know, it's funny. They prosecuted my whole case um, with no proof, right? No handwriting analysis, no expert, no so-called expert, anything like that. Um, it's all just hearsay. Um, and all these companies operate under the same way. These authentication companies work under, you know, hearsay and their opinion, um, but I know it. I know their opinion is trash because I've watched them authenticate my forged memorabilia, right? But they, you know, they get away with that. And to me, um, you know, they're the ones that have really ruined the industry because they use their name and their reputation and slap, slap, slap their approval on fraudulent items to make a buck while operating, you know, within the realms of legality in the system. And they're the ones running the whole. Uh, the whole industry and the industry can't be fixed. It's too far gone. You know, with me, it took me many years, Cliff, right? Because for the first, I, I don't know, eight years of my incarceration, man, I was so angry that one, I was taking it out. Um, it was, it was free reign on child molesters that came in the system. And so I was taking a lot of that anger out on these human beings, which made me even feel worse in the end. But I was constantly like blaming the people that that testified. These were my homeboys. Like, how could they pull up on the stand against me that I've never seen before in my life? You know, and they knew that they were lying. They knew what they were doing. I was charged for conspiracy, right? Which means that they don't have anything on you. Conspiracy is is the, the thought of doing something, essentially, right. right? They had nothing against me, no evidence of whatever, and they gave me damn near 20 years off that, right? So I spent a lot of great many years on trying to, one, figure out how and why this happened to me because I, 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 I spent my life... And that, and you know, before going to prison, thinking that God understood my plight and that he had my back, you know, in my twisted way of, of committing these crimes. I was a drug dealer. I was a dope boy. <clears throat> I was selling crack to, to American citizens in my neighborhood, right? And I never saw anything wrong with that because at the end of the day, I'm trying to eat and I can't get a job. I can't do none of the things because, I mean, I, I was being arrested at 14 years old because of the decisions I was making at that young age. So my life was already roadblocked in many sense that I didn't know how to maneuver into my adulthood. But at the end of the day, man, I just had to come to the realization that this, this was just meant for me to endure and that my actions and my thought process, my insecurities of self, 
allowed me to attract these type of humans around me. And at the time, I knew that these people were no good, but I chose to overlook that because they they made me feel good or they were like suiting a need at that time. So it was me understanding within me that I had a void within me that I was trying to fill by imitating certain things, selling drugs, you know, poison to, to American citizens, really just living off other people's misery, you know, and, and taking advantage of their downfalls or ignorance of such. And that is when I realized all the toxicity that was coming in my life because of this, this thought pattern. And that is why I'm out doing what I'm doing now to get people to understand that we get wrapped up in this stuff so quickly. And, and because we, we have these dreams as, as children or whatever, that society puts in our heads, you know, they, we get marketed for this stuff. We're marketed to, especially children in the poor communities. Um, and, you know, uh, young black children are being marketed to for their athletic ability. And it puts such pressure on our parents to, to, to push us in a direction that that child may not even want to go in. And then when that doesn't go through, like in your instance, there was no other education as far as life skills. Okay. If, if baseball don't go through, then, then I'm going to follow with being a doctor or attorney or anything of that nature. It we're left with, what do we do now? And this, these sports agencies that know that they're marketing to our children, they don't do anything for these individuals who don't make it, but has dedicated their life, especially in the case of an injury like you. There's nothing, no kind of insurance put in place for these kids who get up to 21, 22 years old and maybe injure themselves and have nowhere to go. And the sports world just kinds of let, you know, hey, tough luck. Sorry about it. Sorry you dedicated your life to try to get here. Maybe you should have had a better trainer. You know, absolutely. So you know, something I want to backtrack a little bit on on a little bit of uh, something you were touching on is uh, you know, and, and I speak about the the guys on my case a little bit, and and the prosecutor and the detective, and obviously, um, you know, I feel uh, the case was mishandled, right? It was prosecuted in a way it shouldn't have been. Um, but for me, the reality of it is, is I accepted that I put myself in that position for them to handle it that way, right? So I came out of prison. Um, you know, with no bitterness towards these guys, most of them have hit me up since I've been out and, and, uh, you know, my co-defendants, um, and I don't have anything for them and they'll never be in my, my circle of people again, but I handle, I hold no animosity towards them. I really hold no animosity towards the detective or the prosecutor either. Uh, you know, how they, how they prosecuted the case, um, falls on them, you know, their misdoings. Um, and you know, karma comes around for them in, in different ways. They both lost their career, right? So it doesn't fall on me to be bitter towards them. The fact of the matter is, is that I put myself in that position, um, for them to be able to do that. Right. So did the prosecutor manipulate my mother and my father? Yes, but I caused the situation. Um, and that was really, uh, an enlightening moment for me, um, because there's different levels of accepting responsibility, right? So me pleading guilty is accepting responsibility, but when I accepted the fact that I, I put myself in that position, um, you know, my bitterness and animosity kind of went away and I started to see, you know, what my purpose is 
Um, that doesn't mean I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about the the misjustice and how they handled it because that affects other people and, and things like that need talked about, needs uncovered, needs eyes put on because this is what happens to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, I really saw my purpose and my purpose is telling my story for a couple reasons. Like you talked about one, it's a cautionary tale. Um, you know, I had no backup plan aside from baseball. It doesn't mean I wasn't going to school. It doesn't mean I didn't have my college degree, but I had no no plan, no purpose other than play baseball. Um, and it's a cautionary tale to a lot of young athletes. If you don't have a backup plan, you know, you see, uh, geez, even Tom Brady struggling with what do I do after football? Right. Right. You know, when you have done something your entire life, for me, it was age four through 26. I, that's 21 years. Now, what do I do? Right. And, and, and you become lost if you don't have other life plans, life goals, um, so it's a cautionary tale, but on the flip side, you know, a lot of my story is what I'm doing now to be successful, what life after prison is, as you know, my username on TikTok is life after prison. Um, obviously you see in the background, the iconic brand, um, which is a brand I started, which, you know, I always use the slogan, turning cons into icons. Uh, and to me, what that stands for is not selling yourself short after prison, right? Just because I have a felon moniker on my name, does not mean I have to sell myself short and say, you know, the best I can do is a minimum wage job, flipping burgers, whatever it may be. I have big goals, dreams, aspirations. Part of it is telling my story and trying to affect other people coming after me, knowing that they have a chance. And, uh, you know, I made a video about this a couple of days ago that, you know, I get calls from my friends in prison all the time still that, you know, they got a little bit of time left or whatever. And the calls always start the same. You can hear it in their voice. They're, they're beat down. They're depressed. Um, and we get to talking about what I got going on and, and the, the goals I'm trying to achieve and the projects I'm working on. And you can hear hear the the demeanor and the motivation in them change because they know because I'm out here doing it that they see light at the end of the tunnel that they, they can be successful after prison, right? And that's a lot of what my story is. I want to show that that's possible and it doesn't need to take long. It doesn't need to be hard. I mean, it takes hard work. It takes focus. It takes motivation, but it can be quick. Right. You can get out of prison and with the right support group thrive and not go back to the streets. Uh, and that's the kind of the message I try and portray and tell um, and what I try and show in my life. And that, that all matters to me. And like I said, the brand is very important to me because of what it stands for. Mm. Um, and it's just being successful after prison. Well said. And, and that's what we do. And that's, you know, at the top of the show, that's why I said I greatly appreciate what it is that you're doing, because you you are what we would hope for inside is, is, you know, something that went national in, in the face of America that is now coming out speaking about their own injustices within the system. But before we go, um, the, the people that thought that they were buying authentic merchandise, how does that resonate with you now, understanding that you manipulated people for your own self worth you know to to me at this point in time you know there, there's nothing to be done like i can't go back in the past and change the past um i can't even track down victims to offer restitution it's just it's it's imp it's an impossible task uh obviously the prosecution didn't even didn't even bother right so to me the only thing i can do is you know take this this time that i got um and the path you know i never say i regret the past or that i regret my crime because I wouldn't be sitting here with you today telling this story if it wasn't for that. 
Amen. Right. So do, do I regret the decisions I made? Absolutely. They were wrong decisions, but I'm, I'm happy and satisfied of where I at, where I'm at in life right now and the opportunities that I have. So going forward to me is I just need to do more good than, than damage I caused. Right. And, uh, you know, part of that is, you know, I have a roommate with me right now. He lives with me right now that I met in County jail in Ohio seven years ago, uh, heroin addict left for dead by his family. Didn't know where he was going, what he was doing seven years ago. And I offered him a plane ticket uh, out to Las Vegas and a bedroom in my house with my family, with my mom and dad at the time. Um, and as I just alluded to, he still lives with me. He's clean and sober, never missed a day of work. Tells us all the time we saved his life. Awesome. Right. So, so that alone, you know, is worth what I went through. Um, and that alone is also more good than, you know, people buying $50 fake autographs. You know, this, this man's life was saved, um, but that doesn't mean my work is done, right? I need to continue doing good um, to make up for what that is. And, you know, I, I have a platform to do it. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it's, it's about talking about my case or talking about prison, um, you know, but the thought process I have, um, you know, if I tell a prison story and 100,000 people watch it, if 1% of those people come to my page on my platform and hear the real message, it was worth telling that prison story, even if I didn't want to. Um, it's all about just getting to the real message, which is, you know, reintegration and, and success uh, and overcoming adversity uh, to be successful, to become a better person. And that's what really matters. Well said. Well said, my friend. And that's that's the premise, I think, that a lot of us uh, create what we got going on, you know, and and. Um, as as stressful as my life is, uh, you know, every everything that I got goes into my nonprofit because it's all that I have. You know, this is all that I have. And it's like you said, this is all that I have to contribute to the communities that I helped um, distribute this poison that we're dealing with all across America. And, you know, so if if I if I leave this place tomorrow, I, I know I can leave knowing that I've done everything that I possibly could to try to fix some of the the issues that I helped cause. So that's all we can do, partner. And I, and I agree with you 100%. I don't regret anything from the past because it, it created who is here today. And I love every aspect of this person and what I've become from those experiences. Um, and I find pride in these experiences because I know that 99.9% .9 of the human beings that that judge me could never even begin to walk in the those experiences that I've been through, you know, so I find pride in that. I hold my head up for that, that I was able to walk through that, not sell my soul, not um, become something that I wasn't, but to find myself, my true self and and deliver from there. So that that's the message, man. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, so, social media is a, a, a weird place sometimes full of a lot of people with a lot of hatred. Right. Um, and a lot of times, you know, I get the, that I almost seem proud talking about my case or my time or what I'm doing now. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is I'm not proud of my crime, uh, but I'm fat. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I navigated a prison system that's supposed to break you. It's supposed to make you into a, a repeat offender. It's supposed to break you down and make you commit more crime to go back and feed the system. Uh, and instead I came out a better person, a better person. I came out with a, a, a clear purpose in life, a clear direction of what I want to do uh, and who I inspire and motivate. And, you know, for all the haters that are out there that, that, 
try and put me down. There's so many people out there that support me and send me messages like I show your message to my kids or I tell my husband or my son in prison about you. I had a lady the other day asking me if I would write her son in prison just so he knows he has a chance on afterward. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that makes me keep going, makes me keep telling my story because it's those type of people that the message is for. The message isn't for uh, the haters in society that maybe haven't dealt with adversity, haven't had to overcome anything. It's for all the people that do have to overcome adversity and how to be a better person. Uh, and as long as you know, I'm getting those types of messages and inspiring those people and motivating those people, you know, that's all that matters. Amen, good brother. So how can the people find you? Oh, man, you can find me uh, here on YouTube, Cliff Panizic. Actually, that's, it's everywhere on every platform, but you can go to cliffpanizic.com. Uh, that's got all my social media uh, platforms, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat, Facebook. Uh, and also, if you're interested in the Iconic brand, it's iconicbrandclothing.com. My mission statement is on there. We got new apparel. That's how you can support me if you want to support the cause and everything I'm trying to do. So I appreciate y'all, and I appreciate you having me on, man. I truly appreciate it. This was a, a, a good and a fun interview, man. I appreciate that, man. And and um, that's why I just try to keep it copacetic, man. I just try to get the, the real out to the people um, and, and, and essentially just try to get people to understand, like you said at the top, how we can just get wrapped up in emotions, reactive thinking that could lead down a rabbit hole of pure hell. You know, so it's um, my my thing is just really trying to teach people how to listen to that inner self, because. There's always that inner self telling us, man, listen, you're, you're, you're messing up right now. You know what I mean? Like, but so, you know, to, to me, it's, uh, you know, anybody out there that thinks it can't happen to them, mm -hmm. it can, you know, one 30 second lapse in judgment can put you the same place that, that me or you went. Right. And it's, uh, it's always about perspective. It's about keeping that in mind. I even know for myself right now, I'm on probation, um, you know, I don't, I don't fear probation. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. Um, but it's always, you know, I'm very aware of what I'm doing and that, you know, any, any little slip up can put me back in prison and, you know, I walk a straight line, but you got to be self-aware of what's going on. And, and so does everybody else. If you think it can't happen to you, um, you know, that's a, a bad place to be because it can. Absolutely. So Miss Yvette Harvey, she wraps up saying that, that, that your story made her smile. She's so happy to see that, that you're doing well for the world. I'm talking about your iconic brand and whatnot, but I'm um, essentially that's it, man. Again, yeah, thank you, Cliff, for coming on um, and and rapping. Uh, for the listener, again, please visit www.cominghomecoalition.com. Sign up for the raffle. I mean, I'm giving away free Tampa Bay Rays tickets, and I can't get anybody to sign up for this raffle, man. So, uh, again, it's it's for a good cause to support Eddie Deloy, again from homelessness to self sufficiency, and. Uh, yeah, Cliff, I, I'll catch you on the flip side. So you're done with TikTok? What's what's going on with TikTok? No, I got I got banned from uh, TikTok Live, um, basically for just uh, answering some questions about prison. So uh, I'm not going live over there anymore. Um, but you know, I'm pushing. I'm trying to push more of my story over to YouTube uh, and Instagram. Um, TikTok's not the place. It's just too. It's too censored to, um, you know, really talk about the injustices and and what goes on in prison and whatnot. And unfortunately. That's not the stuff I always like talking about, but, you know, it has to be talked about. Um, and like I said, for me, my message is, you know, if I if I can tell a prison story and get 100,000 views, if if 1,000 of those people uh, then come to my page and hear the real message, the life after prison message, the iconic brand, turning cons into icons, that's what really matters. So um, I'll continue to tell those stories if it means everything else is going to get heard. 
Amen, Cliff. Will you take care? Stay safe, partner, and I'll catch you on the flip side. For my listeners, I love you guys. If you haven't heard it from nowhere else, you can hear it from Thomas Freeman at all times. I love you. Stay safe and be your best self. Man, we out of here. Appreciate you, man. Take care.